thank you for coming on. Sure, thank you. Uh, I'm joining me today is Neelagandhan RS, the author of South versus North in Disgrace Divide. Um, yeah, I was reading your book, and it's actually quite an interesting read. Uh, interesting book that you've written. Um, could you tell me what made you want to start writing this book? Um, sure. So, uh, you know, I'm a in my day job, I work as a data scientist, right? Uh, so uh, about uh, 10 years ago, in, in, in 2011, uh, I, I live in uh, Tamil Nadu, uh, and we had an assembly election back then. And uh, um, I was curious, and I was wondering what the worth of my vote was. And at that point, we, uh, I, uh, you know, we had also started running a podcast to sort of uh, around these areas of just covering the uh, state assembly elections. And when I calculated what the worth of my vote was in terms of probability, obviously it was a very small number. And then what I did was I sort of, you know, uh, calculated the, you know, impact probability of impact of my vote for uh, the parliamentary elections. And then I compared that with a uh, random constituency in the Northern part of India. Um, so when that happened, I just found out that the difference uh, between a, a, a voter in southern India and in my constituency, which is in Tamil Nadu, vis-a-vis uh, somebody in northern India was actually about 40%. That is, you know, the Tamil voter was about 40% more powerful than somebody in northern India. And I was wondering why this was happening. And sort of, you know, uh, it, that led me into a rabbit hole for 10 years. And at the end of it, 11th year, you have this book. Wow. So it's actually taken you 10 years to write the book um well it's uh, i've been thinking about this in some way shape or form for 10 years i started writing the book uh, in early 2020 so it took me two years to write the book but the you know uh, most books have a thought process that far precedes the actual writing part of it right like yeah that took 10 years okay wow um what's the reception to the book been like Oh, uh, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Uh, it's it's uh, you know it's 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 doing quite well. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, there are a lot of copies sold. There's been like positive reviews, so I'm generally quite happy. Okay. Um, has any state governments approached you about utilizing the stuff that you've written about in the book, or so uh, uh, the, the books? Um, the, the blurb of the book is uh, by the finance minister of uh, uh, Tamil Nadu. So, you know, uh, to that extent, uh, you know, the government of Tamil Nadu is at least somewhat engaged. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and the uh, sort of the deputy chairman of the planning commission of the state also has engaged with the book. So to that extent, uh, in Tamil Nadu, there's a little bit of engagement from the government. But, uh, you know, uh, ha- the degree of engagement from governments, I'm less interested in. What I am more interested because it's you know, uh, uh, like I argue in the book, nobody is going to voluntarily give up power, right? Like what at, at the end of yeah. the book, what we want, we want uh, people, uh, we want those in power in the union government to sort of you know uh, adopt a new model of governance which is going to uh, uh, sort of uh, leave them less powerful, so to speak, right? And 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 and. Uh, Nobody is going to voluntarily opt for that unless there is uh, pressure from below. So uh, 
to that extent i haven't heard somebody from delhi sort of calling me and saying yeah i'm willing to relinquish power yeah that's uh, actually a fair enough um, assessment um so uh, you talked about uh, you actually covered quite a few points in the book and i kind of wanted to go through it um probably from the start if you don't mind mm-hmm. so what sets apart india's democratic system uh compared to somewhere like the uk or somewhere like germany um can you speak to that sure so uh, let's take the uk because of uh india uh, uh you know in, in some way shape or form inherited the uh, westminster system uh, you know uh, because of its colonial history uh the difference is that each constituency in the uh, united kingdom i don't know what their current size is but if you take uh, india each constituency has about uh, about 2 million vote uh, the population of each constituency is about 2 million which is an extraordinary size for one mp to manage right um, i i, I, yeah, I don't yeah. uh uh you know uh, what the corresponding number in the uh, uk will be like it's a country of 60 million and you still have about how many mps like 400 uh yeah i can't uh, i'm not entirely certain about the number but it's uh, definitely not yeah so 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 the the uh, the absurdity of the system begins there right like you know you kind of have transplanted what is the westminster system into india and except the difference is that the united kingdom is a country of what about 60 million people uh, which yes. is you know the size of one state in india uh, we have a, a similar system except we have uh, about 1.3 billion people right so the 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 sheer size of the constituency in terms of population that each mp represents is humongous right so that is one problem the other problem is that uh, because of the way in which uh, you know india is a federal union with multiple states unlike the united kingdom right like uh, you know the united kingdom has a different sort of setup but like uh, the, the the basic difference here is that you know there are linguistic ethnic religious Uh, uh, religious differences but more importantly it is also that most of these states which form what is now the union of india uh, have never been in a political alliance for much of history right and so so the indian union in 1947 was the first experiment to kind of bring them together to form a single uh, uh, modern country and in in doing so the idea of each state having sufficient representation in the indian union became a bit of a problem but it was kind of tightened over by the fact that the nationalist movement which uh, uh, you know got india's independence was kind of sort of uh, enmeshed and embedded into the politics of every state so it was kind of a binding force because of which initially it did it didn't seem like it would be that big of a problem for instance a reasonable comparison would be the united states right like uh, even though they don't follow the westminster system they have very very strong state rights right and, and the reason why they have state rights and the connecticut compromise and the, uh, the reason for which the united states senate is so powerful is all because states are kind of the uh, building blocks of uh, their overall federal system right India has even more of a reason for its states to be the building blocks of its federal union and yet we do not our system doesn't allow for states to have you know uh, as uh, a right as significant as uh, states in the united states right and and on top of that you superimpose the westminster system from the united kingdom which kind of you know has a because it it, it 
comes from a much smaller country that parliamentary system doesn't work uh, as well for uh, quote unquote states as it does uh, as other systems do we have a you know even at the beginning we have a, a little bit of a problem and then on top of that india's basic divergence sort of makes everything look infinitely worse so okay so is there a push towards um centralization of power more and more now in india um uh, yes so you know you you have this complicated setup initially in india right which is that uh you know you, you have a system where you have a union government it, it, when it was set up uh it was set up such that uh, there is a, a a stronger center and a weaker uh you know state and this was partly by design because the framers were worried that if you didn't do that the country would sort of you know uh, there would be civil war and the country would not sustain and it would split and uh, so on and so forth right uh, so so by design the center is a little bit more powerful than the state but with time what has happened is that and this is true for any system that you design which is that if you have one part of it having slightly more power than the other that slightly more powerful uh, entity is going to usurp more and more power from the less powerful entity right and and over the years that is what has happened uh, in the 1970s uh, uh, during the prime ministership of indira gandhi we had you know emergency which was kind of a watershed moment in terms of you know the center uh, sort of declaring itself even more powerful and ever since the 70s slowly but surely the uh, the, the the center has sort of taken over large swaths of what used to be state functions and in the last uh, so decade or so that's sort of been on steroids right so essentially what has happened is that the the union government sort of uh, monopolizes taxes which is that most of taxes that i pay i, I pay very little tax to the state government most of the taxes that i pay go to the uh, union government right so the the power of the purse which is the most significant power any government can have largely rests with the central government um the uh, second thing which is the policy uh, areas which that government each layer of government is responsible for over time the union government has sort of taken up more and more areas of policy and even those that were explicitly stated as state subjects it sort of uh, figure out so it has used the power of its purse to sort of you know uh, side step into those areas which aren't actually its domain uh, and, and then oh, in the last decade or so there's been this increasing push for this idea called one nation one policy in multiple policy areas which is uh, uh, which is sort of touted as some nationalist uh, idea except that you know it just ends up as a power grab so yes to answer your question oh uh, this has been going on for about 40 50 years and except in the last 10 years it's been on steroids okay well um do you think the reason that uh, like you said in the last uh, decade or so the reason that this movement's kind of been on steroids is probably a result of what's happening across the world in terms of you do see more and more of a nationalist and almost isolationist um point of view that is coming across as loads of governments um uh, you see that in america you kind of see that you are seeing that here in the uk a bit as well now um uh-huh. there's been cut to foreign aid spending and obviously uh one nation one power um it's almost the same as uh, make america great again so 
that is a little complicated right like uh, 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 i would agree that the, the 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 politics is kind of similar and and i don't you know i'm not a sociologist i'm not going to venture into providing you theories as to why that happens but you know make america great again or uh, the idea of hindu resurgence in india or what's happening in uh, you know victor orban or with uh, uh, edwin in turkey or with the, you know what used to happen in brazil with bolsonaro like there, there is a, a there is a common element to it there are multiple reasons and you know political scientists and sociologists will give you several answers to why that is happening but that is in the realm of uh, uh, sort of the political reality of elected governments right but what is happening in india is slightly more than that which is that the the union government over on top of that uh, such a nationalist project is decimating the layer of government or the multiple layers of governments which exist other than the union government whether that is related to the nationalist project i am not so certain like you know people who occupy that chair uh, uh, in the union government they've always been power hungry they always want more power for themselves but what i see happening is that this nationalist politics is enabling that uh you know that that power grab more by virtue of you know projecting the strongman politics right so um see uh, the 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 idea of uh, uh the nationalist politics uh, uh you know taking hold in multiple countries especially right wing populist nationalist politics is true in multiple countries right like the reasons for that are multivarious and 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 i don't want to get into why that happens because that's a complicated subject uh, uh but the point is that in india's case that nationalist project has also enabled the uh, sort of you know uh, complete usurpation of power of other layers of governments by the central government Right? I, through this one nation one policy uh, regime i don't know if that is true in other countries right like i don't know what happens in the uk but at least in the united states like nominally the republican party is the party of the states rights which also wants this nationalist project uh, to be going on right uh, yeah. again i think in germany again uh, 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 the idea of the uh, greater federal structure in 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 whatever way shape or form they want their federal structure to be is a is a right wing is slightly more a right wing project than it is a, a, a you know a, 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 a what is a center left project right but in india what happens is that uh, uh i don't think it matters what the political ideology of the people in power is it's that those in power seem to want more more power accruing for themselves right and this nationalist politics has sort of enabled that in strange ways because it sort of sees this into resurgence as sort of a single uh, they they want to see the entire country as a single hindu society right which you know if you are tamil you sort of don't see that if you are like you know if you are any of the linguistic minorities you probably have to see yourself as you know that linguistic minority first and uh, you know this larger entity second but the uh, the uh, hindu nationalist politics sort of wants to uh, do it the other way and because of because they are uh, you know the the hindi majority happens to be uh, the majority that politics is sort of you know taken precedence and 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 whether that is one of the reasons why we see this uh, extreme centralization it's a factor but i don't think that's the only factor okay wow um what do you think kind of can be done to um circumvent this and ensure that states do 
um, if they can't get more power, at least hold on to the powers that they already have. So, uh, you know, a, a status quo in India is not going to work, like I argue in the book, right? It's, it's, it's uh, like, like we have one set of states which are extreme, uh, which, which are re- doing relatively well, and it's sort of their social indicators are sometimes comparable to Western Europe. So, uh, like I said, uh, the, the, the structure of uh, our politics has essentially resulted in the center usurping power, as we just discussed. And there is no, uh, uh, and if you see the Indian Union right now, uh, one set of states has some indicators comparable to Western Europe. Another set of states have that, the same indicators comparable to Sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, you know, the central government sort of now is increasing uh, uh, its authority over both policymaking and taxation in those areas. And then, you know, sort of having the same policy for both these two sets of states, which is just, you know, practically not feasible, right? So the, 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 what the book argues in the last third is essentially a new idea of democracy called gamified direct democracy. Because I yeah. see it impossible uh, in, the, in the current setup, it is practically impossible for you to arrive at any good solution. What will you do? Do you, do you, do you not want people in, in one part of the country to sort of have proper health care and education? That's not a fair thing. Do you therefore want to hold hostage those who have achieved that in another part of the country? Also, get unfair. Do you, like, how do you want to uh, sort of uh, equalize, uh, you know, taxation uh, across these multiple states? Again, if you just keep taxing one set of states uh, over and above, uh, it feels like a punishment for success. Uh, whereas, you know, if you don't do that, it feels like you're letting down a whole swath of uh, the other set of people. So it becomes like an intractable problem if you let status quo continue. And then on top of that, of course, you have political representation and delimitation issues coming up and we'll discuss that separately maybe. So the answer to all of these questions is, seems to me to be extreme decentralization, right? And, and, and yeah. if you want extreme decentralization, there are very many ways to achieve that. A simplistic way to do that would be what, uh, you know, what was Winston Churchill's dream, which is to sort of uh, just, you know, uh, well, he, he was under the assumption that uh, India would not sustain as a country and it would break up into a million parts, uh, you know, and it had a little uh, complicated uh, colonial and racist tinge to it, right, because he didn't, whatever. But the uh, and if you also uh, if you look at uh, the history of secession movements uh, all across the world, they, they, you know, uh, with very few exceptions, they you know it's very easy for them to descend into violence and chaos, and nobody wants that, right? So, what is the uh, process by which you achieve extreme decentralization, but do it in an orderly fashion, which actually achieves uh, you know the ends that you want and arrives at the optimal point equilibria in terms of you know political capacity that you want. Uh, the way to do that is what I argue is uh, gamified direct democracy. And, the, you know, we, we can discuss that in greater detail if you want. Uh, yeah. Um, would you like to define what um, gamified direct uh, democracy is? Right. So, uh, you know, direct democracy is something that, you know, most of us probably read in school, which is that, you know, in ancient Athens, where what they did was they basically got all, uh, you know, well, it wasn't all people. It was all uh, men with property in the town square and basically uh, discussed the issues of the day and they everybody sort of voted on what was 
you know what the city of uh, uh, that particular city state was going to do and they sort of you know if, if all the men agreed that you know this is what we're going to do we're going to do that right the modern version of democracy which is a representative democracy doesn't do that at all it's sort of you know all of us elect one mp like i discussed in in, in india the constituency size that elects one mp is about 2 million right uh, so it's an extremely high number uh, which uh, you know uh, one mp represents so many people and that mp votes on our behalf in parliament right now in the first case in athens like uh, uh there is perfect transmission efficiency that is if i want a policy i vote on that policy and and that's that in the uh, and therefore the there's perfect transmission efficiency so to speak the problem is that you know you give the power to the mob right like they for instance voted uh, to kill socrates uh, uh you know uh by that's by poisoning that was their motive killing all because he wanted people to have critical thinking right so you don't want uh by just because there's perfect transmission efficiency you don't want the system to descend into a system of majoritarian tyranny right like that there's that there's that problem on the other end of the spectrum what we now have which is the modern representative democracy the transmission efficiency is nearly zero firstly because we have such large constituencies secondly because yeah. these mps even if they sort of you know magically this transmission efficiency between 2 million voters and uh, one mp didn't happen they still cannot vote uh, the mp of my constituency cannot vote as she wishes in parliament because she is bound by what her p- political party says and she is bound by the whip of that particular party and she has to vote according to what her party says right like uh, her but uh, personal opinion there doesn't matter right and then she does this on every single bill that there is which then results in this absurd thing of a transmission loss for every single bill which basically means that if you if you measure the overall transmission efficiency of my policy positions vis-a-vis the end policy goal across a series of uh, you know policy measures across various bills that are tabled in parliament it's practically zero right so you don't want that either so what is the point of optimality between these two extremes one one basically has no guardrails and it sort of can descend into majoritarian tyranny the other has sufficient guardrails but sort of ends up sort of not being an oligarchic system of its own with very little transmission efficiency right so what is the point of optimality wherein you uh, have a reasonable transmission efficiency but have sufficient guardrails where you do not allow the system to get into a system of chaos which then will naturally also result in the uh, overall system sort of coming down to the uh, decentralized equilibria that we spoke about earlier that is decentralized uh, sorry that is gamified direct democracy right and the way in which we achieve that is imagine that you know you still had the ancient athenian system that is instead of uh, you know uh, we electing mps imagine that sort of we disband current parliament and sort of have direct voting on all bills that are tabled in parliament right now there are few ways that this uh, uh, you know the political power is captured by the party elite the political party elite one is the calendar that is the legislative calendar of what will comes to vote when does it come to vote that retains a lot of power right so what i propose in this system is a three legged stool one is the actual voting itself by the people and there are uh, you know uh, systems and safeguards for that we'll come to that later the other is the legislative calendar of to, you know when what comes to a vote the third is the drafting 
right? Because Parliament, uh, how much ever we may not like it, has expertise in terms of drafting legislature and sort of having standing committees and whatnot, right? So that makes sense. So this three-legged stool. Uh, what I argue is that the first. will be directly voted upon by the people with some significant limits and restrictions we we will come to that in a little bit the other two that is a committee which basically brings in uh, which decides the uh, legislative calendar and the other committee which sort of decides what is the language of the legislation how is it going to be framed what uh, taking inputs from various experts etc these two are separate committees which are sort of divorced from the actual voting process and both of them will be chosen by what is the ancient idea of sortition which is that you know you pick people at random the first committee because it's a legislative committee you know you you can pick it absolutely at random the second committee because it's an expert committee you you can still pick it by uh, you know sortition but you sort of want to have guardrails because you know you have to be uh, an expert in the first place in order to get it right so you know yeah. have Threshold criteria for who an expert is, and then pick it by subtraction, right? So once those two are done, the third idea of voting, I, I propose a algorithmic approach there, right? So one, what do you want? You, uh, if you want to avoid majoritarian tyranny, what you want to make sure is that you, you give people the power to say no, a lot more than the power to say yes, right? And, and that's the way in which you yeah. stop majoritarian tyranny. right and, and the way in which uh, the, this particular system hopes to achieve that is that uh Uh, the, so in this system, how do you bring about any kind of law, or bill, or anything, uh, and and get it passed through parliament? Is that first you have to uh, uh, you know say that this is going to be a proposed bill, right? And for that, you have to have at least twenty percent of the people agree with that idea first, right? Oh, bill. right and for that you need to get 20% of the people sign up for that right and then on top of and then if it passes that particular thing then it becomes to a vote for the general public right and there what happens yeah. is that uh, so everybody is given n votes to begin with right so and and how n is decided as we take the moving average of 10% of all votes uh, uh, all bills passed in the last 10 years and give, we give that as the value of n for every single vote so let's assume i have i don't know 20 votes in a year right the way in which this will work is that if after this has passed uh, it, even in the initial uh, sort of 20% requirement for a bill to pass if i do vote yes on that i what would happen is that my n would become n minus 1 at that particular point right so i used one vote so to speak right and and let's say that it it did pass and it became like on the second stage right now i would have n minus 1 and let's say you voted no for it right and 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 it it's uh, still sort of passed because 20% of the electorate basically wanted it and uh, you know it, it won that simple majority contest and so it it became like you know a, a bill for the white public to vote on right to for it to actually become like a uh, you know thing that people vote on right now your you will not have lost your uh, one vote because what happens was mine is n becomes n minus 1 because the proposal passed yours will not become n equal to n minus 1 but it will retain at n because you you did not actually end up using your vote because what ended up happening was the opposite of what you want right so there, there's that happening and then in the actual voting we will again have the same logic which is that anybody who wants to vote a yes they will have this particular thing which is that you know they can use one vote but those who want to say no to it can use all their n votes that is if you want to say no you can 
you can be n times more powerful than me who wants to say yes okay which is, um which is the way sorry, sorry. uh do you think that um, obviously giving uh, the um citizens more power to say no that can cause deadlock in parliament and make it a bit more inefficient yes in fact uh, that is uh, uh, that's by design right which is that we want to make parliament extremely so the power the power of the veto is very important right like for instance take the indian parliament uh, it has about 3.41 lakh crore a lakh crore is a trillion i guess so 3.41 lakh uh, sorry a trillion rupees set up every year for what are centrally uh, central flagship programs right now these are this this is the central government spending on what are state subjects if you have this system of voting this will never pass at the central level because you know there will be uh, uh, nmesh states which basically want because of the divergence that we spoke about earlier this will never pass parliament right uh, because it's not in several states interest to pass it so if this doesn't pass in parliament somebody has to do that job right and and, and what will happen is that it will naturally descend into uh, you know a lower a uh, layer of government and equal uh, so so you know this 3.41 trillion rupees will never pass parliament at that particular uh, uh, level right so what would naturally happen uh, what would naturally and and somebody needs to do that job and ideally is the job of the state government right and because the state as you come lower and lower uh, in, in terms of uh, you know the the political entity so to speak or for that uh, I, I don't want to say lower or lower. It almost seems like there is a hierarchy of government. There isn't. Uh, as a, as the seat of the government becomes nearer and nearer to the citizens, its chances of passing are greater and greater simply because there is greater cohesion in terms of what the citizens want. Right? Like that's that's the entire idea of this. And therefore, what would happen is that uh, with time, the usurpation of power by the central government would be reversed because nothing would pass at the level of parliament. and the chances of it passing are a, a lot higher at at, at uh, local and state government levels right and okay. and because this is true for policy uh, 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 prerogatives the other side of this token is taxation so why would you pay a lot more money to the union government if it is not actually doing anything is a question that people will naturally ask themselves and therefore the other side of the token will also start kicking in over time so both revenue and policy would sort of descend into the lowest uh denominator in terms of its uh, uh geographical uh, uh unit okay wow that's actually really interesting do you think there's um uh, a possibility of this um getting implemented well i hope so <laughs> <laughs> um no that's actually quite uh, quite an interesting approach to government and um i i'm actually i, I myself am a big fan of decentralization and i think um like you're saying as well i um i think governments can get a lot more achieved in the local levels and state levels um so uh, in the uk here we'd be talking more power given to the councils so see that's the thing right like the uk talks of decentralization but the uk is like uh, you know its entire population including where uh, uh, wales uh, northern ireland and scotland uh, and england the entire population of it is actually smaller than the state that i am from which is tamil nadu right so yeah, so yeah. Uh, uh, you know whatever problems uk has like magnified 
a hundred times. That's the extent of problems that India has, right? And, and and if you want decentralization at the level of UK, imagine the level of decentralization that we need in India. Yeah. Um, do you think that the loss of um, state power has obviously um, driven down businesses and um, all of all other kinds of stuff. Um, I'm not sure in Tamil Nadu, but uh, it's definitely something that's happened in Kerala, where um, there's there's actually not that many people in Kerala because everyone's trying to go abroad. Do you think the loss of power can be attributed to that? No, see, uh, you know, Kerala has a uh, the, the reason, firstly, we should be aware that the, the reason why Kerala's greatest export is its human potential is because Kerala is a very literate society which manages to educate its children, have extremely good health care, so on and so forth. And it is true that its manufacturing base is not commensurate with the human potential that it has, unlike, let's say, Tamil Nadu or Maharashtra. Right now, that why that is not happening that that can happen across the world, but it, you know, Kerala is still a relatively prosperous society by Indian standards, right? So you know, if 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 Kerala is able to export its uh, people uh, world over because it gives them excellent education and those people are go, able to go wherever they want and do whatever it is that they want in their life, well. The government has achieved at least one part of its job. It hasn't achieved another part of its job, but like, hey, that's why democracy exists. And, you know, we can hopefully fix that and we have this decentralized mode and hopefully have more industry set up. And why industry or, uh, you know, manufacturing jobs or high-end services jobs don't come to a place is like, you know, it's not... Modern late capitalism works in complicated ways, right? Like, it's not a simple linear answer. Right? Like, why is it that London is a, a, a center of... of uh, uh, financial services and not, I don't know, some uh, Western, uh, some other Western European city. It, it's, you know, it's a historical accident of sorts, right? Yeah, okay, well, um, you talked about how uh, farming is, farming's uh, been a historical profession uh, in India, but um, given the amount of uh, land that India farms, it's not um, directly, it's not even proportional to the amount of um, produce that's made. And you said, you mentioned that it's not a um, viable career to make money uh, in any states except Punjab. And one thing, uh, and I, I was trying to figure out why it's actually a viable um, career opportunity in Punjab as opposed to other states. Right. So, uh, if you if you take the yield per hectare, right, uh, across all Indian states, Punjab is the only state where, for major grains of uh, rice and wheat, uh, you know, the the yield of that particular state is the only uh, yield in across all states in India, which actually meets global averages and is slightly above global average. Every other state in India has a yield per hectare, which is like far lower than the global average, right? Like I'm talking about global average yield, right? Like we're not talking about Denmark or some, uh, you know, agricultural heavyweight in terms of uh, uh, whatever global yields, right? The global average, which includes much of sub-Saharan Africa, which includes many Asian countries, which are, which still do subsistence farming. India doesn't even measure up to that. It is below the global average, right? And, and, and when you have yields which are below the global average, 
it is impossible for you to have a viable living and on top of that india has put uh, the holding per person in terms of land sizes is also very small like i think the average land size holding size is like about 2 acres or something 2.6 acres if i'm not wrong so when you have such low uh, uh, you know yields and the land holding is so small it is impossible for anybody to make any money out of uh, 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 any money out of this right like it's it's just not economically viable and agriculture happens to also be the uh, 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 be the profession which you know a it pollutes the environment given how we farm in the industrial era you know we 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 have all the uh, Uh, like how much it the, the 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 costs of uh, industrial farming with none of its benefits in india which is like you know you pollute the environment you sort of you know uh, have pesticide runoff and and all the rest and yet you actually do not have sufficient green in the end of it like why why are you even doing that right yeah um do you think that one of the big reasons why the yield is so low per um like per acre is because of poor farming farming practices which have um, eroded uh, the topsoil and subsequent, yeah. subsequently just it's it's complicated right like firstly subs- you know if you want farming to sort of you know uh, be productive if if you look at much of western europe and the united states i think about less than 2% of the population is engaged in farming and yet you know the the, the overall uh, size of the land that is farmed is roughly you know whatever uh, it hasn't shrunk in the last uh, 50 60 years right so the land holding gives you i don't know the ability to increase yields because like what economists call like they have some fancy term for this but anyway point is that when you have about only 2 acres to farm in your yields are obviously going to be that much uh, your ability to spend on your land because you know you're a poor person in the first place who has such a small land holding is limited and and you're uh, likely to be not very educated and you don't have access to modern uh, scientific inputs for methods of farming so on and so forth so it's a it's a vicious cycle right like you you are, uh, the human development potential is poor because of which that person's ability to develop their land is poor and because that land keeps them poor their ability to develop their their human potential is poor so it's like a vicious cycle okay wow um so you talk about you, you talked about um how for, for the amount of tax that we give uh the southern states give so i think i think what you said was for every one rupee that you give you only get back like 30 paisa roughly and compared to the northern states like bihar where you give 1 rupee and you get 4 rupees back and about 50 years ago it was the other way around where uh, the southern states were getting more yes. money back yes so uh, we we want to be careful in terms of you know measuring this in, in, in 1 rupee which is why in the book i give you a sort of a regression chart of sorts right so if if you look at uh, all states in india and and sort of plot a regression chart of you know how much uh, what the gsdp that is the state level uh, gross uh, state domestic uh, product is and, and measure it in terms of central transfers and then see if uh, uh, or, or measure it in terms of their actual budgets right you can basically see if these country, if these states were countries with themselves which did not participate in the indian union like you know are they doing 
worse or better in terms of their state budgets, right? Like that's a reasonable measure of is the state contributing at the end of the day to the Indian Union or is getting money from the Indian Union, right? If you see that, you will basically see that, you know, uh, states in the southern, uh, particularly Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, Kerala, uh, these are all states which are Telangana. These are all states which basically have a negative residual in that chart, which essentially means that, you know, if they were independent entities, their budgets will be much bigger, which is another way of saying they'd be able to spend more money on their own citizens, right? Now, and, yeah. and opposite is true for much of the Indo-Gangetic plain states, right? <clears throat> so the, the, the problem here is the way in which the Indian Union administers its uh, tax policy, right? So uh, when I pay taxes, I don't pay uh, uh, taxes to my state government. Most of my taxes are to the Union government, right? I pay very little taxes to my local and state governments, right? Uh, and, and the way in which the Union government collects that tax, it collects a lot of tax. And uh, it, 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 what it does is, it keeps much of the tax for itself and then it divides what is remaining into uh, with all the remaining states. And the way in which that division happens is the, the, the ratio of that is decided by what is called the finance commission, right? Like what is the ratio in which each state gets how much, etc. Now, the problem has been that um, uh, over the years, uh, there's been a fight about population, right? So in the last two finance commissions what they have particularly done is that they've taken the 2011 population as the basis for allocating much of uh, this this tax kitty so to speak right uh, and as you know southern states sort of have had a lower population growth over the past half century right and and they have lower population growth because that was the intended policy of the union government in the 70s right so they implemented a given policy quite well and the, and the effect of that is that they are now being um, deprived of their own, ta uh, you know, tax devolution, right? That yeah. Is, that, that is the serious problem, which is that, you know, you're basically being punished for success. And, and uh, states in the Indo-Gantetic brains are being rewarded for their failure, right? Now, yeah. it's that, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is, hey, isn't this true for every single country in the world? true right right like uh you know every other country has some version of equalization through tax policy the difference here is that in all those countries uh you know uh in india the what drives population growth is birth rate right it is uh, uttar pradesh or, or madhya pradesh or uh, bihar or jharkhand or uh, uh, rajasthan uh, these are all these all these states have high population growth and unlike in yeah. the West, where uh, population growth in, in, with, uh, in regions of their country, which are higher than other parts of their country, happens because uh, in the West, for instance, you know, in the United States, like uh, up to the coasts, uh, states along the coast have higher population growth because people from central, um, middle America sort of move there, right? Like uh, that's true in China, where, you know, going to the coasts for uh, a better job is actually has been a civilizational thing for a very long time now, right? So... My internal migration is what decides population growth in those countries. In India, unfortunately, what has happened is that higher birth rate is what decides population growth. Okay. Um, so, so what... Sorry, uh, continue. So what has happened is that, you know, when you have this weird situation where a much smaller state is uh, which is also growing at a much smaller rate compared to a state which is, you know, much bigger and is growing at a much larger uh, pace in terms of its population, 
just because the smaller state is slightly more wealthy, you want an infinite transfer of resources to the much larger state, which is growing at a much larger pace. It is a fool's errand to try and equalize it like that, right? Like, so what do you do, right? You don't want to be unfair to the child in Uttar Pradesh. Like, we want children in Uttar Pradesh to have schools and basic health care and whatnot so that, you know, they also live a reasonable life. But is the way to do that, like, endlessly sort of transferring from one place to another without paying sufficient attention to success in policy, which has resulted in those relatively uh, 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 well-off places to become relatively well-off in the first place. That's unfair, right? Yeah. So, so what do you do here? And the answer, I argue, is extreme decentralization, like I argued earlier. Yeah. So what's stopped the northern states like Bihar, like you're saying, uh, from achieving this? Because obviously, if the goal was to, uh, if the um, goal was set by the central government, uh, by the union state, and the southern states achieved it, what stopped the northern states from achieving it themselves? Right. So, uh, you know, uh, this is interesting, right? Like, uh, 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 the governments can come, you know, say that, you know, they have a population policy and they can, you know, say this, that and the other. But world over, the evidence is pretty clear. When do you achieve stable and, 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 and uh, stable populations that control the growth of populations? It's relative, it's straightforward. Send girls to school. It's the greatest contraception invented by man, right? Just uh, if, if girls get educated, they have fewer children. Just, you know, and what the southern states did, which the northern states uh, did not do, is, you know, have a very high, uh, uh, first of all, the, the amount of gross enrollment ratio for girls in every step of the way, from primary school to middle school to uh, uh, secondary school to high secondary school to college, right? If you see this in the last 50 years, the southern states basically, in every step of the way, they just, you know, got more girls into school, retained more girls in school, stopped their dropouts got more girls into college. And if you see the fertility rate, the greater the number of years uh, in terms of education a, a girl child has, the lower the fertility rate of that particular state. So, you know, why is this happening? Well, because many of the states in Northern India did not send their girls to school. Okay. And what steps do the Southern states implement to retain girls in school and make sure they continue on for a high progression and um, obviously for the studies. Right. So if you look across, uh, so why do girls uh, stay in school? There are multiple reasons, right? Like a generation ago, it was a midday meal scheme, which incentivized a lot of girls to come to school and stay in school because, you know, there was rapid poverty and school was a place where they could actually eat lunch. Right. So A, that. B, uh, in recent times, another uh, distinct correlate has been the uh, menstrual hygiene, the availability of uh, menstrual hygiene products in school for free, the availability of safe, good toilets for girls to use. These are all factors that have sort of, you know, been found to be correlated with uh, retaining girls at uh, you know, uh, sort of mid, uh, high school level, right? Because uh, that seems to be an important factor, right? And and, and a lot of southern uh, states have, um, they, 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 for instance, have uh, menstrual hygiene products given away for free to girl children whenever, uh, you know, whenever they need it, right? Like that seems to be important. The third is, you know, uh, this is intangible. Uh, well, it's not intangible, but the data for it in India is difficult to find because a lot, a lot of underreporting happens. So, uh, fear of sexual violence is another important factor for, uh, you know, girl children to sort of not uh, show up in school. 
Uh, fourth factor, and this is true for across uh, both genders, but it is particularly true for girls, is that one of the biggest predictor of when a child will drop out from school is failure. That is, if you fail a grade, you sort of, you know, that, that, that's a, a predictor of a dropout. So the question of governance becomes, do you want to test children at the risk of having a higher dropout rate? Or do you want to have lighter testing, so to speak, so that you retain more number of children in school? Right, so it's a it's a it's a, it's a complicated question to ask. The other side of uh, the uh, the uh, token is so. Do do you not want to worry about learning outcomes? Do you want to have children stay in school forever but not learn enough? That's a valid question. But the, if the question is well, if you do that, the 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 uh, you know children are basically going to drop out. You're not going to have enough children in the first place in the school. But so it's it's a it's a decision that states need to make. I would argue that Tamil Nadu and Kerala are now at a situation where they can worry about their output metrics. Whereas Bihar, Jharkhand, Madhya Pradesh, uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Rajasthan, these are states where they need to worry about their input metrics of like getting more kids into the gates of the school first, right? So this again is the reason why there needs to be extreme decentralization and state level policy making instead of one size fits all. So this um, approach that the government's taken where they, they're moving more towards a centralized approach, is that too, obviously, well, uh, a side effect of it is that the southern states are slowing down, but to try and get the northern states to catch up with the southern rate, the southern states, and in the meantime, the southern states kind of just have to suffer for a bit, uh, suffer for a, uh, a while. See, that is the problem, right? Like, it's essentially, for instance, if you look at, uh, so the, the union government came up with this uh, national education policy in 2020. Uh, the first version of it was released in 2020. I think a subsequent version of it was released in 2021, if I'm not wrong. Uh, but anyway, if you read that document, it's pretty extraordinary, right? Their goal for 2035 is to have the gross enrollment ratio at uh, higher education, which is actually colleges, at 50%. This is extraordinary because uh, Tamil Nadu achieved that in 2019. So, okay. <laughs> you, 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 you have set a 15-year goal, which is something that one state is already a, a relatively large state, has already achieved that. And so what are you going to do? What does this mean? It basically means that you have a, a you, you want Tamil Nadu to stop, you know, uh, actively doing anything in this area until the rest of the country catches up. How is that fair? Right. So essentially what uh, the increasing centralization and uh, uh, using one policy for all states is doing is, you know, you basically had a race where you, you sort of had one set of people run really fast and sort of you know have a race unto themselves. And then another set of people fall far back uh, and sort of run a race amongst themselves. And so the question is. Do you, what this one size fits all policy, which with, with such kind of goals do is they're essentially saying, you know, people running far ahead, you stop until the rest of them catch up with you, right? Now, yeah. that is, uh, the, that's not a good way to run policy, especially like what, what, what would you answer to people in Tamil Nadu or Kerala or, the, you know, Telangana or Karnataka saying, hey, like we're not going to waste 15 years uh, in terms of catching up with the rest of the world just because, you know, other parts of this country aren't, haven't caught up with us. That's just unfair. On the contrary, the reverse is also true, which is that, you know, those children in Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, like I said, like they they need basic, uh, you know, schooling in the first place, right? Like they don't want policy measures which are targeted at, uh, you know, these sort of states which are ahead in the race, right? So 
what you do is the question right and 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 you cannot do one thing which will ever satisfy these two sets of states mathematically impossible right and and that is the reason why we cannot have one size fits all and that is the reason why we want extreme decentralization okay um with regards to the southern states obviously the southern states have much more of a um state identity as opposed to a national identity like you were talking in the book um so in tamil nadu you're tamil first and then indian and i'd probably say in kerala as well it's the same so you're from kerala first and then it becomes indian i'd probably argue that the northern states don't have that much of a difference in their uh, in their own identity in terms of them being indian and obviously you talk about in the in the book as well there's a bigger push from the central government to make hindi um part of a national curriculum um is that kind of a point um i think to have done from the central government uh yeah so this has been going on for a very long time right like uh, you know um uh, in, in the 60s uh, you know there, there was anti hindi agitation uh, in tamil nadu which basically is what brought the dmk to power and 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 people in tamil nadu thought you know they won that fight like why are we fighting you know something which we already won 50 years ago but the but the problem here is that you know uh, people in northern india genuinely sort of if if you go to the streets of northern india they genuinely think that you know they uh, uh, there shouldn't be one language across the country right like I, i don't know why a lot of people think that there, there are not people who think that uh, the answer to that question again is you know that question is actually moot which is that if you have enough decentralization and sort of have all these state governments sort of take a view for themselves right like the the, the 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 opinion of a person who does not speak my language should not matter in terms of what is the language in which i go to school right like like a person like like how is it like yeah. you know let's say uh, 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 people in kerala shouldn't be deciding how uh, tamil children go to school and vice versa similarly people in uttar pradesh shouldn't be deciding how tamil children go to school and vice versa right like what we want is that state to make the best decision for its children so that you know they have good lives and go learn as much as possible and sort of have healthy outcomes and and and, and here again is the basic problem right like why do we learn a language we don't like learning a language because you belong to a country and you want to communicate is an entirely political purpose we learn languages because you know firstly the the your mother tongue is what you sort of grow up with and therefore you learn right over and beyond that why you learn language there are like very few reasons one i want to sort of you know participate in the uh, you know as a data scientist if i didn't know english i don't know how i would read uh, papers to sort of update myself in terms of what the you know latest algorithms are that would become difficult so you know english is very necessary for my trade uh, uh similarly if i wanted to sort of you know another uh, so so essentially economic uh, value is one reason why people learn languages if they go to let's say you know if i go to germany i want to uh, sort of integrate with that society and learn german or for that matter if i go to delhi and sort of find a job there i hopefully learn hindi right like you know there's there's, there's that aspect then if you basically want to understand the uh, sort of you know there are people who want to read literature in a given language and therefore sort of you know uh, read that and sort of explore the human condition in that particular language that's again a fair reason to sort of learn a language 
there could be similar other reasons learn the language entirely because it's a political project for somebody else is probably the most absurd reason to learn a language right like just doesn't make sense and yeah. yet it seems to be the only thing that the uh, union government seems to be pushing and like i argue in the book uh, subnationalism or linguistic identity especially of linguistic minorities seems to be a reason for better development outcomes so why would they sort of erase the one thing that seems to be working reasonably well i don't know why is that well you know the easy answer is that you know uh, to 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 brand that as hindi shopinism which you know i don't think people who want that are are are, are, are shopinists towards uh, hindi it is that they cannot understand the diversity of the country they cannot respect the the multitudes that exist within and, and you know it's, it's it's a very easy thing to see the other in your own image right it, for the average person it english is somehow seen as a colonial language and and the average person in northern india doesn't seem to understand that to me a tamil person both english and hindi are foreign languages right like it, it doesn't seem to occur to them that you know and, and i pick english over hindi as you know my preferred foreign language because it it gives me sort of economic advantages right like uh, that the idea of the map of india it seems to be etched into their head and languages seem to be called indian languages right like that's that's something that the government uses very often which is that you know they call languages indian languages uh uh in the national education policy as well like what is the definition of what an indian language is this you know linguists don't recognize what an indian language is right like if you if, there are indo european languages according to linguists and there are dravidian languages according to linguists right this concept of an indian language like is is it is it one that originated in india which basically then means that both english and sanskrit did not originate in india so they they're not in indian languages is it one that is spoken in india well in in that case well now we're speaking in uh, english and i sit in india and therefore english should count as an indian language but they don't seem to think that and sanskrit is hardly ever spoken so again it doesn't count right so well and if you look at the national education policy it sort of keeps harping on sanskrit so i i don't understand how they sort of decided that sanskrit is an indian language english is not an indian language like it's a it's a political decision right like uh, and 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 people don't respond to that people respond to either their uh, their personal identity which in my case i'm tamil and therefore i learn tamil and sort of things tamil are important to me and i assume that is true for most other linguistic minorities and we do things for economic gain or you know exploring the human condition thereof for which you know i use english right i don't yeah. use hindi for any of those things so why would i learn that language it, it doesn't make sense to me right like i don't think the person in northern india seems to get that at least the politician through which they speak doesn't seem to get that do you think that the politi- the politicians having this approach to kind of uh, almost shove hindi down uh, the citizens throats um it's to develop um, a national identity um and usurp the national uh, usurp the state identity that the southern states already possess yes uh, that that's a reasonable explanation uh, i mean For, for, uh, that has been the project of uh, central governments since the time of independence right like uh, uh, you know the the idea of india as a union at the time of independence 
was seemed to be unviable in the first place right like the no, many people didn't give it a reasonable shot and therefore you know uh, whoever was in government wanted to create a single national identity and they used many tools for it and hindi was one of them you, you know it's a reasonable thing to then argue that you know therefore the the just like uh, uh, you know you you could argue the reverse right like tamil identity works malayali identity works kannadiga identity works and therefore the union government is trying to get a hindi identity to work except the problem is that you know these things work because they are organic that doesn't work because it seems to be shoved down the throat um i remember reading that uh, maybe like i might have been like a few years ago now there was a bit of a movement to where the southern states were almost going to secede from the central government Yeah, is that well, something that actually happened uh, actually kind of uh, was discussed or kind of a movement that was gaining popularity so when the indian union was set up like i said the, it was set up at a strong center right so ever since that like the indian government uh, has not dealt with uh, like for instance at least take the country that you're currently living in the uk right uh, scotland wanted like the referendum in scotland was a you know like the english yeah. probably didn't appreciate that so many scots wanted to break away from the united kingdom but to their credit they actually had a proper referendum which was close right and and if scotland had voted to uh, sort of uh, secede from the united kingdom probably that would have happened right like the english might not have liked it but they would have still allowed that to happen the indian union unlike that sort of does not even like if you look at what happened in kashmir if you look at what happens in uh, much of the northeast particularly in nagaland since the time of the 50s the uh, and what like the way in which the indian union came about and ever since it has sort of dealt with with such a, such an iron fist and with such extreme violence uh, uh towards anyone and everyone who ever wanted some version of self representation be it you know uh I, I, the, the, you know the examples are the number of soldiers in the streets of kashmir or uh, you know what happened in nagaland over the years or in manipur for that matter it's, it's 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 you know it's not a reasonable option even for those who want to secede because who wants to have such violence on their hands right like so nobody does which is why what i you know if you want to like why do people want to secede in the first place hopefully uh, it's because they want better lives for themselves and if you can arrive at that organically through democratic means which is what gamified democracy you know hopefully achieves why would you want violence why pick up a gun if you can do it by a vote right? yeah that's true um you talked about in the book and i've also recently learned that the indian parliament there's the number of seats are being um reallocated was it in 2026 no so um what's uh so in 1976 what happened was because uh yeah, the, the they froze the states per state in um uh based on 1971 census because they had this population policy at that point in time right so they basically said you know in every other democracy what happens they have a census every 10 years and based on that census they redraw the boundaries of uh, on the constituencies and they reapportion sort of uh, you know uh number of seats to every state for instance you know uh, recently the american census happened and they sort of had more states uh, sorry more uh congressman from the state of texas and fewer from some other uh, state uh, which is uh, i think 
I guess some Midwestern states like, you know, whatever, uh, Wisconsin, etc., lost a few, whereas, you know, Texas gained a few, right? So, uh, the, the, in in every democracy, that should happen every ten years, right? Like that's because one person, one vote is the idea, and you have to do this if you want to maintain that code. The problem in India was that we decided on a population policy in the seventies, and therefore, as a as the other side of that uh, coin, we basically said because we want this, we will also have freeze the number of seats per uh, state, so that states that do well aren't punished. Yeah. Uh, right, like so. In a in a democracy, the fuel uh, or the resource that which you run your democracy on is people. A population control policy essentially uh, reduces that basic resource, and so they didn't want this moral hazard. They basically had the um, that was for twenty five years. So, uh, uh, so sorry, uh, you, you cut off there. Uh, sorry. So so essentially, in nineteen seventy six, they froze the number of seats per state in parliament, right? Okay. Um, and, and, and that was for 25 years. And they uh, re-enabled that freeze one more time in 1999. And that is set to expire in 2026, right? Now, when it expires in 2026, what has happened in the last 50 years? Kerala has uh, uh, the population growth of Kerala in 40 years between 1971 and 2011 for the last year uh, census for which we have data. Kerala's overall population grew by 56%. Rajasthan's population grew by 166%, right? Kerala and Rajasthan were comparable in terms of their population in the 70s. Now, Rajasthan is actually comparable to Tamil Nadu, right? Like, you've seen the map, Tamil Nadu is a much bigger state compared to Kerala. And, you know, it's, it's, and they're both, like, you know, Rajasthan is no longer a, a peer for Kerala, but instead is a peer for Tamil Nadu, right? So if you readjust the, uh, 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 like with the delimitation, like it happens in every other country after the uh, quote-unquote freezing of it unfreezes, uh, uh, what will happen is that states like Kerala, Tamil Nadu, uh, uh, Karnataka, uh, Telangana, all of these will lose their current number of MPs and these MPs will be reallocated to northern states, right? Simply because they control their population better. And that's an extremely unfair thing to do, especially in a time when we want these MPs to vote in our behalf on all these other decentralization fights, right? So it's essentially yeah. like, you know, punishing uh, success twice over. Once you punish it for policy and another time you punish it for representation, which is like, which will then make people in Southern India question, are we even equal citizens? Yeah. What is something that can be done about this? Obviously, because I, are there talks of uh, extending this freeze so uh, and and we have to be reasonable about this right which is that if you just keep extending the freeze you're being unfair to people in northern india because the value of one vote which is what we started this conversation with continuously keeps reducing in those states simply because they have a population problem right do you do you want people in northern india to not have sufficient representation hopefully the answer is no which is why the answer to all of these questions essentially is extreme decentralization. The answer is that the thing that you're voting for, which is the central government, make it less important so that yeah. you don't know what the value of your vote. And then, like, you know, what happens after that, nobody cares, right? Like, you know, the, 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 the fight happens because the price at the end of it is extremely valuable. Decrease the value of that price and the value of your vote wouldn't matter as much. And which is what um, you know, decentralization achieves. Are there politicians in power or maybe 
trying to get into power who would implement these procedures of uh, in, in these methods of decentralization because i do remember that the congress party uh, just recently ran a selection and um, dr shashi Thiroh, he did run on a policy of more decentralization and giving states more power but unfortunately he didn't win yeah uh, so politicians in india have this strange habit of being friends with decentralization and federalism when they are in opposition and being the opposite of it when they are in power do you know who the greatest champion of decentralization was in the decade uh, like somewhere between 2009 and 14 it was a certain chief then chief minister of uh, gujarat called narendra modi he was like a champion of decentralization look at what he has done when he has been prime minister right so okay, it's, it's wow yeah it's convenient it's convenient to sort of argue for uh, decentralization of power when you don't have power it is what you do when you're in power that matters okay i did not know that um so that's actually interesting uh, to learn so are there any politicians that are in power who is championing decentralization rather than the ones who aren't in power then so the, the okay so uh, but uh, the serious answer to this question is that you know state level parties uh, for instance the dmk uh, in tamil nadu one of its founding principles has always been decentralization because you know it again it, you could argue that that's because of selfish reasons but whatever their reasons are um, you know they they kind of knew that they will never occupy uh, the seat of power in delhi because they are essentially a regional party so they wanted extreme decentralization right like so and that's a good reason to have decentralization which is that you know may a hundred regional parties bloom and may they be the only way in which uh, political parties exist in this country so that all of them will want extreme decentralization yeah um you talked about uh the dmk wanting decentralization for being it started off as selfish reasons can you expand on that yeah so um uh you know uh, uh, <clears throat> the dm for, for for all the issues that we spoke about have been pet issues of the dmk for a very long time right like uh, the language issue right uh, the idea of uh, uh, revenue so the, the uh, i have this wonderful book which basically uh, is called uh, it, it, it's 1974 manila sriachi in tamil which basically translates from 1974 uh, manila sriachi means state self government and it's that's the literal translation but you know a better translation would be federalism but anyway the point is that that was an important plank of the dmk as its founding principle and what it essentially argued for was that it's, it's the base the same thing which you said a while ago which is that you know uh these states of india and particularly because it's a party from tamil nadu it, it was talking about it and tamil interest which is that you know uh this is a nation in and of itself and that you know we are part of a larger country and therefore uh most decisions should be made at the state level be it education or health or tax revenues or any and all of them and therefore we want increased uh, uh power of, uh, authority for uh, state governments and if you if you imagine before the uh 1960 whenever the indo china war was 64 whenever uh so uh before that the uh, the dmk was actively seeking secession from india they 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 sort of it was an official plan of the dmk right um to secede from india uh it's the okay, wow. after which they basically you know whatever uh for political exigency or for other reasons they basically said you know that is no longer a plan and we will now be part of the indian union so to speak right uh, <clears throat> so 
uh, you know, and and that's true for several parties, right? Like uh, there are there are uh, uh, in the northeast, in every single one of those states, you have parties with a history of uh, you know some version of secession. It's uh, uh, secessionist movements have been true in Punjab, but the point is that when you have explicit politics of secession, it's the threat of violence then. Uh, sort of like how do I say this? If you if you actively seek secession, the other side, which is the Indian Union, is going to clamp down heavy, and then the reaction is going to be heavy. So it just descends into violence very soon and chaos very soon because this bad fake action, right? Which is why we we want to be careful to avoid that. But and and the question is, how do we achieve decentralization without either you know if you have political parties and they want to win within the system, they will either sort of be what parties today are. Are what the DMK and the other parties from the northeast were like in the 60s, right? You don't want either one of them. What you instead want is an orderly shift of power and an inversion of the pyramid of power. And the way to achieve that is through gamified demo direct democracy, hopefully, because you don't want to run the risk of extreme violence and 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 just bad faith actions all over. Okay. Wow. Uh -huh. It's looking a bit bleak, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, which is, uh, I will tell you this, a lot of my friends uh, who came back to this country in the early 21st century uh, from other countries because, you know, whatever, they all had uh, an American education and sort of they came back to India in, 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 the first, uh, in the first decade of the 21st century. But now a lot of them are leaving back again because they just don't think that this country is working. And, and and I'm talking about you know a reasonably elite class of society which has just decided to move on. Yeah, um, I, I I do see that happening here as well because uh, one of the things that you said was that obviously when you got an aging population, the rise of social care goes up, and that's kind of what's happening here in the UK now, where there is an aging population, this care, social care has gone up, and as a result, there's a bigger uh, increase in recruitment and there's quite a lot of um, nurses coming over from India now and I think as a, like and even students as well um, I think there's probably quite a few number of students now who are studying in the UK uh, mm -hmm. compared with maybe like a, a decade ago in India yeah yeah so yeah, I, 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 and I'm not even talking about people who are going for better opportunities. A lot of my friends are leaving India not because of economic opportunities. They're pretty well off. The reason why they're leaving is they're worried about the way in which this country is headed. They don't think this is a reasonable society to live in. Okay, wow. Uh, have you thought of that yourself? No. Nah. And I'll tell you why. Uh, if I um, if I do not, you know, like, like what is the purpose... If, if, if I'm not fighting for the change that I believe in in the society that I'm from, like me transplanting myself to a different society where I do not even have the right to fight for something just makes absolutely no sense to me. Have you thought of running for office or some no. kind of political... Um... No. no, because I, uh, the idea that I propose is gamified direct democracy, which is... Uh, whose one of the primary ideas of it is to move away from the representative model of democracy. And I can't be a representative if I were to propose a model that sort of seeks to move away from it. Okay. Um, what's your prediction in the next uh, coming 10, 20 years for India? I, uh, uh, 
I see a lot of, uh, so the next 10 years or 20 years is going to be particularly difficult for India because all of these issues that I discuss in the book are going to come to fruition. And, uh, you know, how they have decided is going to decide the future of this country, right? Uh, whether we do this in a sane manner with, without picking up a gun and fighting over it, or, uh, and one way that I propose is gamified democracy. But, you know, I, if, if that doesn't happen, uh, hopefully people find other methods to do it without picking up a gun, because essentially what you're arguing for is the political dignity of two people, and there is, it is a zero-sum game, right? So I'm worried that it will easily descend into violence, but I hope cooler heads prevail. Okay. Um, I think that's probably a good place to end it. Thank you. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find your book? Sure. Uh, you know, like they generally say, uh, anywhere good books are sold in India, hopefully, but uh, the easiest place to find it is probably Amazon because we live in a late capitalist world. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Go to Amazon and you know uh, hit uh, South versus North and uh, you know my name and you will probably find the book. Um, have you got any more books uh, in the works now or? Um, like I said, I uh, I work for a living as a data scientist. I uh, uh, you know writing this book was uh, very very difficult because you know well we we started this meeting at five a.m. which is why I have no problems waking up early because I used to write this book at four a.m. So okay, I, I I'm huh. not looking up. Uh, I'm not. Lo- you know, it was a very difficult but rewarding experience, but I'm not too sure I want to do this one more time. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, I think that's probably it. Uh, thank, you. thank you so much for coming on. Thank uh, you. Appreciate you coming on uh, this early. Yep. Bye-bye. All right, thank you.